scriptures that we're looking, back, looking at today are quite easy to find because they're in the back of your Bible. They're the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. Living life with the end in sight. And uh, one day, one day, we've been on a journey, a whistle-stop tour through the book of Revelation, and it has been a whistle-stop tour. And there have been various places where we wished we could have stopped and we could have admired the view and taken in the view, but time has not allowed it. And changes in terms of the programme over the last couple of months has not allowed it. But we've just moved through uh, this fantastic book that speaks to us of our Christian hope, which speaks of the the future, well, the present and the future, I should reiterate there. John is writing what he sees, a series of visions. He's a word artist. He's painting pictures. He's looking at it for for us from that period of history between the the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. And he's doing it in very many different ways. And he's almost telling the same story through different cycles. And we have seen Jesus, this portrait of Jesus. We've seen him supervising his church here on earth in those early chapters. We've seen him sharing God's throne in heaven as the lamb who was slain, who was able to take hold of the scrolls. We've seen him controlling the course of history through the seven seals. And we've seen and we've explored there the permissive will of God within society today. We've seen him calling the world to repentance through the seven trumpets. And there are warnings to the world today. Warnings to turn back to their God. Warnings to come again to their Lord and their Master. We've seen him riding on a white horse, bringing judgment and bringing the curtain down on history. And now, in these final chapters, we see him as the bridegroom, promising to come soon to claim his bride. So many different images of Jesus. Let's read from Revelation chapter 21, first of all, and verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars. They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Then we're going to read from chapter 22 and verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there there will be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, The Lord, the God who inspired the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Then verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. How do you look into things that's going to take us all eternity to uh, discover? How do you look into these things in 20, 25 minutes or 30 minutes, whatever it is? You're up against it, aren't you, when you come to something like, like this? But as we began the service with those words from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. 
puts it into perspective because it comes into that passage that in Ecclesiastes where it speaks about there is a time for everything, there is a season for everything under heaven. He's put eternity into the human heart. And we see that around us. But then we look at somewhere else and uh, those words that we know very well from John's Gospel, John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The promise of God. For those who believe in his Son that they will have eternal life. Now there's a sense in which this morning we're stepping outside of time as we know it. There's a sense in this morning that we are stepping into something where we find it very hard to visualise. John was struggling. John was struggling. And I don't for one moment think that we need to take the city, the garden and uh, the wedding there literally as it's written before us, but it's the message that comes behind it that we need to take on board. Revelation 20 ends with the fearful scene of judgment where eternal destinies are confirmed. There is a stark contrast between those who are registered in the book of the Lamb the Lamb's Book of Life and those who are not, between life and death. In verse 15 of chapter 20. It's reiterated there in chapter 21 at the end of the passages there that I read from verses 6 through to 8. The contrast there between those who are victorious who will inherit all this, access to the the water of life, and they, they will be their God and we will be his children, and those who enter into the second death. The final judgment, the second death, meaning complete absence from God, complete absence from the presence of God. There's that stark scene. But as we turn into these two chapters, the focus of Revelation 21 and 22 is on life. The Lamb's Book of Life, the Water of Life, the Tree of Life. John has already in his gospel explained to us that eternal life means the personal knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. In chapter 17, verse 3 of John's gospel, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now in chapters 21 and 22, John is now illustrating this eternal life that is the ultimate and glorious destiny of the people of God. And he's using three very distinct metaphors, very, three very distinct images and pictures. There's the security of the city of God, the New Jerusalem. There is access to the tree of life, in the Garden of Eden, restored. And there's the intimate relationship of a bride and bridegroom in marriage. John has a remarkable ability for mixing his metaphors. 
He abruptly jumps from one to the other, the city, the garden, the marriage, and back to the city, and so on. And it can feel very confusing. But he does it without any apparent sense of absurdity or unease. These two chapters begin with the whole declaration that God is making all things new. Verses 1 to 8 in chapter 21. These first eight verses seem to be a celebration of the newness of God's end time work. The promise of a new heaven and a new earth is not something that is new to scripture. It was first made by God through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 65. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will, cre- I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Those are the words of the prophet Isaiah. Jesus himself spoke about such things in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, where he spoke about the renewal of all things. Literally, the new birth. The new birth of all things. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 21, of creation's liberation from the bondage of decay, that it's groaning, that it's straining to see the children of God come into their own, to come into their inheritance. It's important that we affirm that our Christian hope looks forward not to an otherworldly heaven, a real sort of existence somewhere in the clouds, but to a renewed universe related to the present world by both continuity and discontinuity. Just as the individual Christian is a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the same person but transformed, and just as the resurrection body will be the same body with its identity intact, yet invested with new powers, 1 Corinthians 15, 42-44, so the new heaven and the new earth will not be a replacement universe, but a regenerated universe purged of all, all present imperfection. As John puts it, no more pain, no sin, no death. He will wipe away every tear. So no more cancer, No more loneliness, no more depression, no more despair, no more hurricanes, no more destruction, no more turmoil. He will wipe away every tear. That's what John is putting before us. All these things will have passed away. Indeed, as the voice from the throne declares, I am making everything new. And only he can do this because he is who? 
the Alpha and the Omega. The one who is at the beginning and the one who is at the end. The one who set it all off by speaking his word and creating the world. And the one who will bring it to its glorious climax again through his word. But let's look closely at these three metaphors. At the beginning of chapter 21, John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down beautifully dressed like a bride. See the mixed metaphors? Now in 21, nine and nine verses, 21 verse 9 and 10, he is invited to see the bride but is shown a city. John is playing on these metaphors. The new Jerusalem is massive, a massive impregnable fortress, measuring approximately 1,500 miles in length, 1,500 miles in width, 1,500 miles high. Don't take these measurements literally. Just painting a picture, painting an image. It's a giant cube stretching from London to Athens and out again and out again and up again. It's enormous. It's massive. It makes the city a cube, taking on the image of the Holy of Holies in 1 Kings verses six, chapter 6, verse 20, indicating that the whole city resembles the most holy place. And that the presence of God permeates that whole city. The only other measurement that we are given is that the city's walls are 144 cubic thick. That's 216 feet, roughly, thick. The New Jerusalem is is a massive, impregnable fortress, symbolising the security and peace of God's people. The psalmist wrote, those who trust in the Lord are, the, are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. John is here stressing the security, the security of God's people there in eternity. The city John sees is nothing, is not only huge and solid, but it's beautiful each of its 12 foundations being decorated with a different jewel, verses 19 to 20, each of its 12 gates made from a single pearl, and this great street is of pure gold. As John looks around, he notices that there are certain omissions. There's There's no temple in verse 22. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are in his temple. Their presence fills the city. And because Ezekiel's prophecy will have come true. The Lord is there. The light of the glory and of the presence of God is there. So there's no need of a temple. It says there's no sun or moon in verse 23 since the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb is its lamp. 
we begin to get, enter into this realm where we struggle to comprehend the beauty of this and the glory of it. There'll be no night. Consequently, the city gates will always be open, permitting continuous access to the presence of God. And nothing impure has access, in verse 27. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. They're the ones who have access. The ones who have entrusted themselves to God through Jesus Christ. But there's another absence that comes earlier on in the passage, at the beginning in the first verse. One that causes some consternation to some people. Because then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Now someone who, like me, who loves the sea can feel a little bit disappointed at that point. Now there's a sense in which in Hebrew thought the sea was a place of turmoil. And it was a place where, which we've learnt the beast comes from. And so it's a place to be avoided. But I think there's something a little bit more significant to this. Because John, because John is approaching the holy city. He's pro approaching the holy of holies. And if you approach the holy of holies, in its usual form, Solomon's form, what you find is the sea. Let me explain. In 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 23 to 26, and 2 Chronicles 4, 1 to 6, we find that there is a large bronze bowl that has been made. And it's an enormous bowl because its circumference is about 42 feet around. And it's an innate bowl here, and it sits alongside the altar, and it's filled with water. And it's the place where the priests purify themselves before they make the sacrifices on the altar and before they go into the presence of God. It's the place where they wash themselves and purify themselves. And do you know what it's called? It's called the sea. That's what it's called, the sea. But you see... In the New Jerusalem, there'll be no need to purify ourselves. There'll be no need to wash ourselves. Because we have been washed by the sacrifice of Christ at Calvary. And we have been set free from the bondage of sin forever. And in the kingdom of God, there will be no more sin. There will be no more darkness. So there'll be no more need of the sea. There'll be no need for us to wash. But the city. In chapter 22, we step into the garden in verses 1 to 6. In these early verses of chapter 22, we're still in the city which is mentioned twice. Nevertheless, we've left the walls, the gates and the foundations of the city and the emphasis is on the river of life and on the tree of life. These allusions alert us that John has the Garden of Eden in mind, made new in all its glory. 
The river of life flows directly from the throne of God and of the Lamb, verse 1. And the tree of life stands on, on its banks, bearing fruit all year round, symbolising that we need, that's, <coughs> sorry, symbolising that all we need is found in the one who sits on the throne and on the Lamb. John observes another absence in verse 3. He says, no longer will there be any curse. Takes us back immediately, doesn't it, into Genesis. A clear reference to the Garden of Eden in which the ground was cursed because of Adam, because of Adam's sin. It was was cursed to produce briars and thistles and thorns. And humanity was cursed. And yes, the serpent was cursed. But in the new creation, there will be no curse. The world will be as it should be. Life will be as it should be. And there'll be no more presence of the serpent because the serpent will not be there. So, therefore, there is no curse. The centrality of the throne is once more emphasised and the whole of life will be subservient to the rule of God and to the Lamb, for his servants will serve him. Yeah, there'll be work to be done. Just as there was in in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve were given, stewardship of the earth, so there will be work in heaven, in the new creation, And we will serve our God. In worship, yes, but in service. But then there's this most beautiful, this most beautiful phrase. They will see his face. When I first read that a few weeks back, and I've read Revelation numerous times, that brought me to tears. And they will see his face. In a few weeks' time, Carol and I are off to Canada to see Jonathan and see the grandkids. We've not seen them for two years. It's over two years now. And there's that longing within us. WhatsApp is fine, Skype is fine. But to actually see their faces. To see their faces. Is there that longing in your heart to see your Saviour's face? to see your Lord's face, the beauty, the majesty of the one who paid it all for you, the one who gave it all for you, to see his face. And John says we shall see his face. God had told Moses plainly years and years and years ago, you cannot see my face, for no one will see me and live. And John had previously written in his first letter, which I read earlier on, Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we are has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appear, we shall be like him, and we will see him as he is. 
Does that excite you? Does that thrill you? Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. You know all those questions you've got? Buzzing around in your mind. Then I shall know fully. They'll fall away. They'll fall away because you'll already know. But you'll see the beauty of his face. The wonder of his face. But then we come to the wedding. We've seen that John develops three metaphors of eternal life. Each illustrating in different ways the perfect relationship with God that awaits us in the end. The first was an architectural model, namely the gates, walls and foundations of the New Jerusalem, illustrating the complete safety, security and peace of God's people. Next we have the garden, paradise restored with continuous access to the tree of life and the water of life, reminding us that everything that we need is found in the presence of God. Finally, and much more personally, personal than the city and the garden, John refers to the eternal union of Christ and his church in terms of the wedding of the bridegroom and his bride. Now, according to Jewish custom, <coughs> a marriage took place in two stages. There was the betrothal and the wedding. The betrothal included an exchange of promises and of gifts and was regarded as almost being as binding as a marriage. That even if you put that betrothal to one side, it was an equivalent to divorcing the person. That's why Joseph was in such agony over Mary because it was perceived to be a divorce. But once that betrothal ceremony was taking place, then the bride would go off to prepare herself and the groom would go off to prepare a place to take his bride to. Do you see where this is going? The bride would go off and prepare herself. And in preparing herself, she would then wait for her bridegroom to come and collect her. And when, when he came, that would be a time of communal celebration. That would be a time of communal rejoicing. That would be a time of party. And yeah, a Jewish, a Jewish wedding can be quite a celebration, quite, quite, a, quite, quite, a, quite a party. Now John has already spoken now he's already declared in chapter 19 for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready fine linen bright and clean was given her to wear fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people then the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb and the new Jerusalem He's declared, is coming down out of heaven from God, prepared 
as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Do you know who the bride is? You're the bride. You're the bride. You're the bride. Beautifully prepared. Beautifully prepared. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Our filthy rags have been exchanged for the righteousness of Christ. We close in the glory of Christ. The church is the bride. But the question is, where's the bridegroom? The bride has made herself ready by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, by putting their faith and changing their dirty ranks for his clothes of righteousness. But where is the bridegroom? He's nowhere to be seen. It's not for the bride to fetch the bridegroom, but the bridegroom to fetch the bride. And so it is, that's where revelation ends, with a sense of longing from the bride. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let everyone who hears say, come. I've never met a bride yet who is not eager for the wedding day. Who's not anticipating the wedding day. I've never seen a bride that is not beautiful. And I've never seen a a groom whose face isn't radiant. And I've seen plenty standing at the front, catching that first glimpse of their bride coming down the aisle. But it's where John leaves the church, waiting, hoping, longing, yearning, the bride eagerly looking for her bridegroom, clinging to the threefold promises that he's coming soon and encouraged by others who echo her call. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Meanwhile, she waits, confident that his grace will be sufficient for her until the eternal wedding feast begins and she is united with her bridegroom forever. Amen. Let's pray.